Good morning, guys. Good to be with you again. Hope you enjoyed your breakfast. Uh, last night was really important. Thank you, Clay. We appreciated that. It was great. We enjoyed our, our discussion around the table. I thought the, uh, the concept of diminishing returns was particularly important and applicable to all kinds of uh, issues we might be facing. Um, so just to kind of give you a sense of where we're going uh, today, in this session, we're going to kind of uh, zoom back out. So last night was, was a, a, a particular landmine. And this morning, this session, we're going to zoom out and we're going to consider landmines broadly speaking. In general, what's the root of every landmine? The next session, we're going to zero back in, especially on the landmine of sexual immorality. And again, the last session is what do you do when you blow yourself up <clears throat> with one of these? Um, so you go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to Isaiah 5. We're going to jump in there. Um, it's, it's great to, to be able to address specific landmines like greed and sexual, sexual morality, but, but it's also good to know that, I mean, if you, if you had to address the, and, and sort of figure out the code for every individual landmine, you'd, you'd never stop having men's conference, right? I mean, it would, it, we don't have to know the code to every single temptation, on the face, they are different and present different challenges. Underneath the surface, they are quite the same. And so that's where we're going this morning. We're going to dive back in <clears throat> with uh, Isaiah 5, and our, our focal passage is verses 18 through uh, 21. So picking it up in verse 18, Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, Let him be quick. Let him speed his work that we may see it. <clears throat> let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near. And let it come that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. <clears throat> I'd like to uh, pray for our time together before we, before we dive in in earnest. Uh, Heavenly Father, our prayer this morning is very simply that your word would be to us uh, the clear and accurate mirror that it is, that we would see ourselves more accurately in your word this morning, and that we would receive your grace more gratefully. That's our simple prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, <clears throat> so uh, as we've seen, Isaiah 5 is a snapshot of disaster. It is a picture of a people who had every possible reason to flourish God says in verse 4 of chapter 5, what more could I have done? And so we want to spend a little bit of time doing a, a kind of spiritual autopsy on this people and this particular disaster to see what we might learn about our own uh, vulnerability. Uh, verses 18 to 19, some of the description, we, we read some of it last night, but verses 18 to, or excuse me, 8 to 17 uh, just start to describe and unpack uh, the waywardness of this people. In verses 18 to 19, it gets more specific. It gets, uh, it gets more particular still. It says they, they draw uh, iniquity and sin with cords and cart ropes. What that means, uh, that's an image to say that this is intentionally done, right? They're intentionally pulling sin into their embrace. In other words, in other words what they're doing here is not done in ignorance. This is what uh, other passages in Scripture would call high-handed sin, and then in verse 19, they say, let him speed his work that we may see it. Their, their, their progression of sin is to the point where they're now basically mocking God openly and daring him to judge them. Let, let, let him speed his work of judgment. 
that we might see it. They're living like God wouldn't judge and like they could live free of consequences. It's similar to, um, we're not going to turn there, but it's similar to uh, chapters 2 and 3 of Second Peter, where Peter says to the people that he's writing, many of them have adjusted their doctrine of the return of Jesus, saying there won't be a return and there won't be a judgment, so that they could accommodate their, uh, their growing sensual appetites. So, so doctrine gets adjusted to, to the current, uh, in that case, lascivious appetites. And something similar to that is going on uh, here. Now, now maybe, maybe you're thinking, well, at least I'm not, at least I'm not openly taunting God this morning. And, and that's true. Maybe, maybe, maybe we're not open, openly taunting God with our lips. But guys, sin in all of its forms is a form of taunting. It is a form of questioning whether or not God is holy and righteous and will, and will judge, even when we're just dabbling. Verses 20 and 21, they call evil good, good evil. Uh, they're wise in their own eyes. This is the fruit of neglecting God's works. We see that down in verse 12. It's the, ref- it's the fruit of rejecting God's word, which you see in verse 24, and we'll look at in our next session. In other words, these guys are especially eager to call their own shots. Now, we definitely want to spend time <clears throat> thinking uh, about how to proceed after we detonate a landmine. But it's also really important to spend some time, and this is what this session is going to focus on, how, how can we avoid detonating the next one, right? Can't, can't, can't do anything about the ones we've already blown up. But what can we learn and how can we avoid the next one? So what, what's happening in Isaiah 5, these guys are violating what theologians would call the creator-creature distinction, okay? The creator-creature distinction. And that may be the most important distinction, not just in theology, but in, but in, in, in life. Because uh, <clears throat> sin, is, it's not merely violating this or that discrete commandment, right? Uh, underneath every sin is a rejection of God's right as creator and as redeemer to give this or that commandment in the first place. It is, in a sense, a rejection of God's right to be God over me. So we could say, not only, which we saw last night, that, that, that sin is idolatrous, sin is also treasonous. Tre- sin is an attempt to usurp a, a rule and a ruler <clears throat> and displace him in a way that questions whether God's ways are good, whether God's ways are best. So Clay mentioned uh, David in... Uh, his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah last night. When, when David gets around to pinning his great prayer of confession in Psalm 51, he's got this curious statement in verse 4, right? You have this curious statement where he says, to God against you, and you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, which is a rather curious thing to say when he's just left adultery and murder in his wake. You, you might read that and go, well, surely he sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah, didn't he? And the, the answer is, is yes, but, but the reason he can say it the way he does against you, God, you only have I sinned, is because when he summons Bathsheba for the affair, and when he manipulates and deceives so as to uh, basically manage Uriah's death, when he does that, he, he, is, he is sinning against them, but he didn't invent the sanctity of the marriage bed. 
or excuse me, they didn't invent the sanctity of the marriage bed or the sanctity of human life. That wasn't Bathsheba's idea or Uriah's idea. That was God's idea. So in every sin against every other person, those sins are accomplished by a violation of God's designs, by a violation of God's ideas. To sin against her and him, he has to sin against God first and foremost. So, so when he succumbs to the temptation, the fuel in his thinking is the reasoning that God's ways are not best, at least for me, the king. Maybe it's okay, maybe it's okay that other people are bound by, by, these, uh, by these rules, but at least for me and at least for today, these ways aren't best. She's too beautiful. Who is he to deny her to me? That's the iconic reach of sin, to be self-sufficient. And so with that in mind, I'd actually like you to flip in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. And I want to consider with you for a few moments <clears throat> the most ancient lie. Uh, this is, we'll see here, the lie underneath every lie. It's the one that goes all the way back. Genesis 3, the, uh, the temptation of, of, of Adam and Eve. And I'll pick it up in verse 1 and read down to verse 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. <clears throat> and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves loincloths, on and on it goes into confrontation and judgment. So, in verse 1, the serpent questions God's word. Did he really say that? Clay pointed that out last night. In verse 4, the serpent denies God's word. God says, in the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. Serpent says, no, you won't. In verse 5, the serpent deceives concerning the motivation for God's word. God says, this is for your protection. <clears throat> this is in protection of the creator-creature distinction. You're the image bearer, not the image giver. It's not healthy for you to try to be God. That you're trying to take on a role that isn't yours if you try to be God. You weren't meant for it. It's for your welfare. Serpent says, that's not why he told you no. Verse 5. God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Isn't this interesting? <clears throat> he takes what is deadly and tries to cast it like it's dessert. He says, the reason that God has prohibited this from you, he doesn't want anybody else like him. He doesn't want any other, he doesn't want you to be God, Eve. He is trying to keep you down. In other words, here's the ancient lie. In this world, Eve, you've got to look out for number one. 
because he's not looking out for you. You want to be all that you were meant to be? You've got to lift the hand of autonomy and assert the self. Now, as we said, he's taking what is deadly and making it look like it is dessert. They already have the knowledge of good and evil in the way that gives them life, which is on the basis of God's word, right? This is good. That is evil. This is for you. This is not. What, 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 what Satan is suggesting is that you will be like God when you know good and evil experientially, having done some good and now having tasted some evil. And that is the knowledge of good and evil in a way most unlike how God has it. God does not know evil in the manner that he participates in it. That's right. You see, you see, the, see the deceptive twist in that? That, that when you do something which is most unlike God, that's when you'll be like God. Light bulb goes on in the mind of Eve. For the very first time, a human being thinks, maybe God's holding out on me. Maybe I really do have to look out for number one. And when he does this, or when, when she succumbs to the temptation, it inverts the way the world was designed. So God, God has structured the world such that when things are functioning as they ought, God rules the world through image bearers over whom he has given stewardship over the earth and things like animals. I don't, I don't have a verse to the, say this for sure, <clears throat> but I think the reason that God required Satan to make his appearance in the garden on this occasion in the form of a serpent is so that this would not be a toss-up in the mind of Eve. Right, right, the bells and whistles should be going off here, right? This is... This is an animal over whom I have been given authority. And so when she submits to the snake over whom she's been given authority, in her submission to the serpent, she is seeking to usurp the place of God. The world is turned on its head, and we are still dealing with the fallout <clears throat> today. Now, our picture of the people in Genesis 5, or excuse me, Isaiah 5, which is downstream quite a ways from Genesis 3, is a picture of a people who are very far gone, right? They are far gone. The question is, how do they get there? The answer, I think Hebrews 2 supplies it in one word. Drift. The answer is drift. In other words, this sort of thing doesn't happen overnight, right? It's usually not instantaneous. When you think about people you know that you hear in their lives they've gone farther than you would have ever guessed they would, would go, and you go, I thought it could never happen to them. Well, Part of the problem is they thought it could never happen to them. And so degree by undetectable degree, things begin to progress. Small compromises are made. And the ones who are most vulnerable are the ones who think they could never go that far. So, so this, this, what we would rightly say is an arrogant expression of independence from God is mild in its first departures. It, is, it doesn't start on day one with open fist shaking and daring God you know, verbally to, to, to judge, to bring his judgment. That's why we need to keep short accounts of sin and to recognize, to, to, to repent as soon as we recognize slippage taking place in our hearts, right? To recognize that we're not even fully capable of watching our own backs, which is why we're doing what we're doing this weekend. But make no mistake, all sin is ugly and dangerous because it expresses this arrogant presumption to self-rule 
and to self-define. Let me give you a couple of examples. Pornography, the consumption of pornography, like we will talk about in our next section or session, is arrogant. I mean, it's a, it's a lot of things, but it is arrogant because it, it presumes to assert the prerogative to look at women in a way that God says objectifies them and deadens our souls. It's arrogant. Here's another one that may not seem as openly arrogant, but nevertheless is. Self-hatred. We'll talk a little bit about that in the last session. It, it, it may seem on the surface not to be so obviously arrogant, but among other things that self-hatred does is it asserts, even if subtly, that Christ's punishment was not enough to cover my sin. So I must continue, whether it's emotionally or physically, abusing myself in what amounts to some twisted form of penance, but not repentance. You see the ugliness of that? You see, the, the arrogance of saying that Christ's covering isn't adequate, that, that mindset insists on paying rather than receiving. It's deadly. So what clues might uh, give us a warning that, uh, that we're on this subtle path? What can we be wary of? There are other thoughts. I thought Clay gave some great ones last night. We'll talk about a few others in, uh, in additional sessions today. But for now, while we're thinking at the, uh, at the broadest level, I want to suggest two clues um, that this kind of self-reliance is beginning to encroach. So two, two key indicators. Um, the first is prayerlessness. The second is what I'm calling wordless meditation. So let me, let me say a little bit about, about each of these. Um, usually, where these attributes are present, they usually operate together. And where you find them, you, you may not have the open fist-shaking defiance, right? But there are cracks in the foundation where these features are present in a person's life. So they're, they're, they're signs that we're being enticed, that we're being lured in the direction of embracing uh, sinful folly. So what is prayerlessness? Um, well, not, there's not much that shows a reliance on the self, like prayerlessness, right? Prayer is, uh, one way to think of prayer, prayer is faith at work, uh, at work relying on the promises of God and the character of God, finding the promises of God and the character of God even more trustworthy than the circumstances that I might be battling that, that maybe are causing me to, to question or to wonder about the promises of God and the character of God. But, but when that shuts off, when prayer shuts off, <clears throat> it's not just the absence of prayer, right? No spiritual vacuum. When prayer shuts off, there's usually a redirection of faith towards something else that I presumably find more reliable. Maybe it's just myself. The foolishness of saying things like, I'm too busy to pray. Maybe, maybe you've said that before. I've said that before. I've thought that before. The foolishness of saying things like, I'm too busy to pray, is sort of the equivalent of saying, I'm too busy to put gas in my, my car's tank. Good, good luck getting very far without, without either of those, right? Uh, wordless meditation, what do, what do I have in mind here? So, um, these attributes, prayer and, and wordless meditation, they usually go together, they're twins. If I'm not praying, it's usually because I'm not resting in and relishing the promises of God. But we need to be very clear that where there is not word-based prayer and meditation, you and I will still be meditating, okay? 
Uh, there's no absence of meditation in the human heart. There's only different directions. The, the human heart seeks rest, it seeks hope, it seeks worship, it seeks deliverance, and it doesn't shut off. That's why St. Augustine so famously said, our hearts are restless, O Lord, until they find their rest in you. It doesn't shut off. So let me give you some examples of non-word-based meditation, wordless meditation. Here's one, daydreaming is a form of meditation. We tend to daydream about the things we think will make us happy, right? Bring us fulfillment. Uh, the new job, moving out of California, <laughs> whatever, 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 wherever that may go, we tend to daydream about the things that we feel like will lift the soul, lift the spirits, right? That's a, that's a form of meditation. Here's another one. Sexual fantasy and pornography is a form of meditation. It is wordless, but it is meditation. Here's a third, worry, chronic worry. That's a form of meditation, isn't it? So what do all these things do? Daydreaming, sexual fantasy, worry. They, well, the, reason that, the reason I say they're meditation is, is they hold a set of desires, or in the case of worry, fears, before what Paul in Ephesians 1 calls the eyes of the heart, it, it takes these desires and fears before the eyes of the heart, and it turns them over and over again before that gaze. That is med meditation. It is the exertion of mental muscle to savor what we treasure, what we feel like we can't, at least in that moment, live without, or to contort into anxiety what we fear. Just turn the heart in knots, right, again and again. Turn it over again. Well, here's what else is true, guys. It's not only true that you ceaselessly meditate, it is also true that we become like what we meditate on, right? The object of our meditation will inevitably press us into its mold. Whatever captures the gaze of our heart will press us into its mold. Now, when our hearts are captured by Christ, that's a beautiful transformation. When they are captured by anything else, it is assuredly not. I think Tolkien, he's got, I mean, a lot of things I appreciate about Tolkien, but this is really good theology. What he did with Gollum, with Gollum, he portrays on the outside what happens to us on the inside. When we are enthralled, when our hearts are enthralled by false gods and false promises. You could think of that wordless meditation <clears throat> as a path of Gollumization in our souls. <clears throat> so, if we are going to use uh, the weaponry of God's grace to fuel faith and uh, to grow uh, as opposed to, to finding that we drift, I want to make a case this morning for four things. What we need, where we find it, how to get it, when we need it. What, where, how, when? No small task, right? What do we need? What we need, right, if, 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 if the taste buds of the soul are oriented towards, towards marinating in what gives it hope, rest, worship, trust, peace, what we need is to savor better beauty. We need better beauty than wherever our hearts incline in our drift. Um, you guys, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, right? Temptation does not advance 
by a sense of, uh, of being bound by duty or drudgery. Here, here, here's what nobody ever said. Nobody, nobody ever said, I, I, I hate sinning, but I've just got to fill up my daily quota. So it just as much as I don't want to do it, I've got, got to put a few more deposits in the sin. Like, I, it really bothers me, but I guess I've got to... Right? That's, that's, we, we, sin makes its advance, temptation makes its advance by appeal to delight. It's making promises. They are false promises, to be sure, but promises that you can't be happy without me. That anyone who would hold me back from you doesn't love you. You need me. That, that's, that's, that's how temptation gains traction and makes its advance. Now, that's an imitation of the gospel, isn't it? Because the gospel also advances by, by promises. Only in this case, this, these promises are proven by the character of God, especially as seen at the cross of Christ. So we, we, we need to marinate, right? We need to savor. We need to drink in the beauty of these superior promises. That's where word-based meditation comes in. So when we, when we do that, right, when, when, when this is what our hearts are, the mold that our hearts are being pressed into, that begins to help increase our perception that God himself is the very best blessing. Uh, if, I, if I put my, if, if my view of God is that he's chiefly valuable to the extent that he provides me the other goodies, then what's going to happen when those goodies are taken away? There's only one treasure that lasts. There's only one treasure that isn't vulnerable. In other words, what God wants to teach us is the very best gift that he gives and the only gift that he never takes away is himself. That's what he, that's what he wants to give us. In the words of, or at least the spirit of Isaiah 5.4, what better gift could he give? So that's what we need. Where do we find it? Where do we find the display of that kind of superior beauty that can bring this delight, this transforming delight down deep into the soul? Well, we see it most clearly, I think, in the person and work of Jesus. Jot this verse down. We're not going to turn there. 2 Corinthians 3.18. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, talking about Jesus there, Behold, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. Behold, the glory of the Lord transformed into that image. Again, right, this just this says what we've already said, doesn't it? We become like what we behold and treasure with the eyes of the heart. Behold, the treasure of Jesus increasingly become like him. Now, uh, I do want you to turn to Psalm 27 for a moment, if you have your Bibles handy. So, so we've got the what, we need better beauty. We're beginning to get a handle on where we find it in the person and work of Jesus. Why, 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 why would that be the place at, at which we focus? And, and I just want to draw your attention to, to a comment from, of David in... Uh, in Psalm 27. So David in Psalm 27 is, is literally facing the advance of enemies, like, like surrounding army kind of, kind of enemies, right? And down in verse 4, he says, if you've got an advancing army, 
there may be a lot of things that are on the top of your list of things you'd be praying for, right? So, what's on the top of his? One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. His one thing, when his life is under direct threat, pretty instructive, isn't it? I mean, we've seen Psalm 51. He gets it wrong. His life got it wrong sometimes and for which he repents. But here he's getting it wonderfully right. What this means when he says, the one thing that I want, even more than deliverance from this advancing army, is to dwell in the house of the Lord and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. What it means is that more than anything else, he desires God. He wants, he probably wants other things too, but what he wants more than anything is the treasure that can never be taken away. But here's the, here's the tricky part. The presence of God does present its own kind of dilemma for the sinner, doesn't it? It's, it's a, it can be a dangerous thing, a, a scary thing, a deadly thing for, for the unrepentant sinner. So, so he says he wants to seek, he wants the presence of the Lord, the beauty of the Lord in the house of the Lord. In other words, he seeks what he most needs in the place that covers his greatest dilemma. He sees clearly here, his greatest dilemma is not the advancing army. That's a big problem. It's not his biggest problem. Why the house of the Lord? What did the house of the Lord provide? It was the place of sacrifice. It was the place of covering for sin. And you make the connection. Why did Jesus come? To put away sin. If we recognize our great need for superior beauty, then with those eyes of the heart we've been talking about from Ephesians 1, we can behold the one who gives life, taking death into his bosom for us. We can behold with those eyes him drinking the cup of God's wrath that was reserved for us down to the very last drop so that in his love, the claim of death, which we deserve, is finished. And as time goes by, we increasingly begin to bear the aroma of Christ, right? We begin to resemble him, walk like him, talk like him, smell like him, right? As, as it were, with, a, right? And, and, and one of the chief expressions of that is as we take more and more of that on, we also have an increasing distaste for the sin that distorts his glory. Uh, how? So we've got what and uh, where, uh, how. How do, we, how do we get this stuff in deep so that it does that work of pressing us into Christ's mold? Obviously, we were not there at the time of Christ's crucifixion. We didn't witness it with the eyes of our heads. So the place for us to see that, to behold, is in the pages of Scripture. But in order for that to bring forth the kind of life that we are talking about, it has to go in deep. If you remember the parable of the the sower and the soils from Mark 4, um, there are are four soils, and only one of them bears lasting fruit. You've got the soil of the path, the rocky ground, thorns, and the good soil. In all of the cases, the sower is the same. It's not a different sower, and it's not different seed. The only difference between the first three soils and the last one that produces lasting fruit is the depth to which the seed penetrates, the depth to which it goes into 
uh, goes into the ground. So, so, right, how do we get it? Here's the point. Occasional glancing encounters with God's Word, probably not enough to fuel the kind of dependent, faith-filled prayer and growth that we're after, that we're looking for, the kind of transformation that we're interested in. In other words, I, 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 need, to be a, I need to be a person who, who not only reads the Word, that's important, right? But in reading the Word, I also need to be the kind of person who is opening, by God's grace, myself to be read by the Word. It ha- right? It, in other words, in other words I, I'm, I'm not just coming to this with sort of academic interest and analysis, as important as those things are. It also needs adoration. It, it, needs, to ins- it needs to inspect and perform its surgery in my life. Uh, so in that light, I, I, I want to, I'm calling it a tool, but it's a set of questions. Um, I have some recommendations for you. There's five questions, I think, uh, that can be used, or at least they've been, they've been helpful for me in taking the beauty of God, the beauty of Jesus, uh, the truths of his word down deep and establishing this this rhythm of meditation and, and prayer. And so let me give you a couple of caveats and then I'll share my, um, my questions. They're not rocket science, um, but, but I think they are <clears throat> helpful, or not caveats, but preliminary. So uh, three preliminaries. Uh, number one is I, I found over the years, well, let me give the backdrop first. So um, I, this was recommended to me uh, years ago in a season of my life where I was dealing with a lot of anxiety and um, uh, maybe borderline depression even, and, and, and some things that, that some of the goodies in my life uh, that I deeply treasured had been taken away. And so it was boat rocking, to say, to say the least. And, um, you know, I, I met with a biblical counselor, and, and he gave some really good, great advice and some passages to, to reflect on. And, but, but one of the ways that he talked about this was to you know, to kind of, kind of frame it in, in ways that, that can help. It's kind of like, um, you know, so we just had Halloween. You know, you get the hard candies, the Jolly Ranchers and stuff, um, the Jawbreakers. Those are, they're, they're, you don't, you don't want to just, I mean, if you want to keep your teeth, you don't just put those in and crunch, right? You, 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 you let them roll around on your tongue. They, 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 they marinate, so to, so to speak. They dissolve. This is a way of, of helping it dissolve into the, the soul. Okay, so that's the background. Um, I have one of the things I found particularly helpful is uh, ec- c- conducting this exercise in the second person rather than the third person. In other words, I'm not talking about God, I am talking to God, right? So, so just a mild adjustment from analysis to adoration. I'm processing with the Lord. I also, I found, for me, I don't know about you guys, um, to help fight distraction, a lot of times I'll, I'll, I'll use pen and paper, Shorthand, it doesn't even have to be paragraph, but it just helps me, helps me fight uh, distraction, and it helps me slow down. If I need to slow down and not just go, check in the box, right? Okay, I don't even necessarily do all these questions any given time. So, so sometimes it's like one question is so fruitful, meditation complete, you know, come back later in the day or next day or whatever. Okay, here you go. Uh, number one, <clears throat> like I said, not rocket science, but super helpful. 
What does this passage, whatever I happen to be meditating on, show me about you, God? What does it show me about you? I, right? If I, if I need, um, this is it's funny, I was telling Michael, I was on my way driving here this morning, I left a lot of fog up in La Habra, and so I sometimes think of the temptation that sin uh, presents. As, it's sort of like trying to inject fog into our thinking so we don't see clearly, right? Um, the Word of God disabuses fog, and the character of God disabuses fog. So if, I, if I want to disabuse the fog in my life, I need to fix my eyes on who God is. So that's a, that's a helpful question. Uh, similarly, uh, what does this passage show me about you, Jesus, in particular? If it's an Old Testament passage, maybe it's by foreshadow, uh, maybe it's by prophecy. Um, even if it doesn't say anything about Jesus directly, if it's telling me about sin, it's telling me about why I need Jesus, at least, right? What I need to be delivered from. So, so there's, uh, there's a sense in which Jesus is applicable from every passage. Uh, another question. Uh, what would doubt and disbelief of this passage look like? So there's a variety of, of potential responses, right, to any given passage that, that God has for us in his word. One of them is to doubt it and to disbelieve it. And while I don't want to go down that path, I certainly would like to, uh, to, to, to explore it so that I don't go down that path, right? This is, what, this is what disbelief would look like, so this is not what I'm interested in. Or maybe this is what I'm manifesting right now and need to repent of. Similarly to that, uh, what would trust and clinging to you look like here? If I'm not interested in doubt and disbelief, but trust and clinging, what would that look like? Uh, next one. So this is going to move the whole slide forward. Do you guys need a second? I see some of you writing. Oh, that's fine. I'll give you a second. I'll, tell, I'll say the next one while you guys are taking this one down. It's, it's, again, it's pretty simple. Uh, so the next one says... How might the Holy Spirit want to work these truths into my soul? How might he want to work, whatever, whatever these truths, how might he want to work those into my soul? In other words, are there any, if, if, the, if the Spirit had his way, by applying this word to my life, what might that look like? Any changes called for? Maybe, maybe Thanksgiving, right? Uh, is it okay if I advance now? Yes. All right. So, and then, and then, and then finally, just sort of mixed in all throughout, uh, maybe following the time, um, prayer, worship, as we've used the word. So, so in other words, right at this point, here's what I'm thinking of. Um, you have a, a time of, of meditation on, on a passage of scripture, and, and then you take something from that, that passage that stood out, Savor it in prayer, right? Take it down in prayer. Send it back up in praise to God. Down in prayer, up in praise. Number three, if you have the opportunity, pass that on to another person as a mode of encouragement. Maybe that's a family member. Maybe that's one of your buddies from your table this weekend. Send a text. Okay, so think about this passage. Hebrews 3.13 says, Exhort one another every day, that none of us may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Aren't we talking about the deceitfulness of sin this weekend? And, and it says we need the, these kind of admonitions every day. There, there's a place for pastors to exhort the congregation in the kind of ways that we're talking about. But according to Hebrews 3.13, it's not only the pastor's job. 
right? It's each of us to one another, as long as today is called today, so that we may avoid the encroaching hardening of deceitfulness of sin. It is so easy. I don't know about you. It's easy for, easy for me. Even after a great moment of worship, it's easy just to, you know, the, the next you know, worship ends, the next moment of, of conversation is, what are we going to go get for lunch? Who's playing? To, and I, I, I'm interested in all of those things. I'm definitely interested in lunch. I'm interested in who's playing today and, you know, good SEC football, Clay. I'm interested. <laughs> but how often do we, and now this weekend is a great opportunity for this, but how often do we linger around exhorting one another against the deceitfulness of sin? So if, if this stuff <clears throat> grabs you, and I hope it does, I'm, I'm, I'm going to recommend over the course of the sessions today a few passages for meditation that I think might be particularly worthy for seeing the beauty of Christ, for seeing the beauty of Jesus um, very explicitly. I'll get to one of those in just a second. Uh, the next question is when? When do we need this? When do we need to take it down deep? And, 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 and apparently Hebrews 3.13 says that if, if the deceitfulness of sin would have me cozy up to small compromises in my life on a daily basis, apparently I need this every day. Uh, Tim Keller, in his book on prayer, he opens with the, with the, the illustration. Um, he says, so imagine you have an inoperable tumor, but there's medication that you can take, and every day you take it, the tumor shrinks a little bit. Every day you don't take it, the tumor grows a little bit. It's a pretty nice metaphor for life in the already not yet, right? Walking with Christ, still dealing with the flesh. It's like, well, this, this is your medicine, right? Prayer, fullness, and word-based meditation, pressing the beauty of Jesus into the eyes of the heart, that's your medicine. You, I mean, you're not going to cease to struggle with sin, but, but it'll, it'll take, right? If, 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 if sin, self-deception wants to take us an increment of drift in this direction today, his argument is that taking the medicine of prayer and word-based meditation take us an increment in the direction of growth instead. So, Good medicine, right? I think that's why 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says, encourages us to pray without ceasing. I don't think he means by that that every moment is a moment of sort of formal prayer, but all of life is being transacted in communion with God. It's what our, what our forefathers would call life quorum Deo before the face of God. So, okay, um, if it's not a matter of if we will meditate, but what we will meditate on, we're drawing to a close now. It's worth pondering What's drawing forth the praise of your heart these days? What's drawing forth that praise? And in order to help us uh, consider the place of meditation and maybe refining the hold on a better treasure, I'll give you one key passage that might help us taste and see. And it's not, it's not mainly what you're going to work on in your table discussion. So I've, I've got one of these passages for each session. And it's just to jot down and maybe consider spending some time with after the weekend is over, okay? So turn to Matthew 4. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 4 is uh, the narrative of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. And uh, he, he, he was... He, he didn't succumb to the temptation, but he was tempted at the same fundamental point at which we are all tempted, namely, right, the, the deep point, the deep root, to disbelieve that God was for him, 
to disbelieve that God could be trusted. In fact, in fact, what Jesus is doing in Matthew 4 is, if we had more time, we'd go into it in, in some detail, but, but what he's doing here, it's an intentional reenactment of Genesis 3. This is the second Adam passing the test where the first Adam and all the other little Adams here have failed, right? Um, the difference is it's under more difficult circumstances. Adam and Eve are tempted in a place of, of garden opulence and beauty and fullness. And, and here Jesus, as you know, has been fasting for 40 days. He's alone, isolated in the wilderness. So, super quick. Uh, the first two temptations of Jesus in the wilderness, the, 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 the serpent, so to speak, um, in both of those cases, he says to him, if you are the Son of God, do thus and such. So the first one is, if you're the Son of God, turn stones to bread. The second one is, if you're the Son of God, um, throw yourself down from the temple and make some angels catch you. Right? That's, that's, the, that's the crude summary. Um, so in English, you read that and it makes you think that what Satan is up to is, you might be the Son of God, I'm not sure, I'm still figuring things out, so do a miracle, make some bread, cause some angels to appear, and I'll believe you're the Son of God. It could sound to us like that in English. That's not what he's saying. Um, grammatically, it's, we won't go into it, but the grammar indicates that's not what he's saying, but, but so too does the theology. It's, it, there's ways of forming conditional sentences. Basically, um, th this, this statement is not, if you are the Son of God, effectively what his point is, it's since you are the Son of God. So here's the point of contact of the temptation. You're the Son of God for crying out loud. What business does he have starving you for 40 days? You have all the prerogatives of God. Why in the world are you waiting to be told what to do? You want angels? Make them appear. You want bread? Plenty of stones here. It is not fitting for him to treat you like that. In other words, he's not for you. You've got to look out for number one. It's the same point of contact, isn't it? It's the same point of contact with Eve with David, with you, with me. Of course, Jesus is living as our representative. He's, as I said, he's obeying where we failed. But the third temptation, which is the one I want to focus on in the next minute or two, was probably the most grueling. Let's pick it up in verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. By the way, when he passes the test, you see verse 11, the devil leaves, and then the angels show up. It's the sign that he's passed the test by faith and trust and obedience and not by manipulation. But here's the point, here's the point of contact of the third temptation, and this is why I think it's so grueling. Satan says, You want the nations? You want the nations without a cross? It'll only take a moment. You know what he's got in store for you? 
your path to the nations? What kind of father who loves a son would do that? He's not for you. Here's Jesus being appealed to by another self-indulgent word, refusing to be guided by that word, and instead relying on the sufficiency of God's word. We didn't have, we didn't, but at, at, at every point, at every point that, that Satan brings a, a deception, Jesus responds with a word of scripture from the book, right? I mean, this, it's marinated in his soul. He's, he's bathed himself, even as he's the author of it, he's bathed himself in it, in his human obedience. There is a lot of glory to behold. The question for us this morning, guys, is are we thirsty for it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is our prayer this morning that we would hunger and thirst for better love, for better beauty, for better security, for all the ways in which uh, we have in the past and perhaps are at present being tempted to settle for less, to be manipulated by self-deceit into settling for escapes and soul-numbing self-medication. I pray that you would open our eyes to see what superior treasure is offered to us in Jesus. For those of us who need to be warned in advance, I pray that we would heed. For those who need to repent and come back, I pray that we would see it as worth it. And for those who need to walk with those who have wounded themselves, I pray that they would have strength and wisdom for the conversations they're about to have. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.